it's lovely to be here. Um, I'm, I'm, um, I, I have a theology background too. Um, I read theology here in Oxford and, uh, and, and uh, trained um, as an imam at the uh, Muslim College in London. Um, but I don't have sort of expertise in peace studies, but when I was invited uh, to come and speak, um, I thought, you know, this is just the thing for me. This is something um, I can really get stuck into and would, would really enjoy uh, because I do lots of interfaith work. Um, there's an educational program that I devised last year, piloted uh, for the first time in the UK. Um, but really the key is you know, what kind of society are we trying to shape and build and, and, and leave for our future generations to come? So, thinking about um, what I should uh, uh, say today, um, of course, the, the primary sources in, in Islam are the, uh, the Quran and Hadith, um, the, the revelation itself, and, and then the Hadith uh, contains the reports, uh, the sayings uh, and deeds of, of the Prophet. But I want to try and take another, uh, a different look. And, and, and that, this look is really to look at the, the life of the Prophet, because the Quran speaks of the Prophet as being sent as a mercy for the world, uh, as, as being an excellent example to follow. Um, and I thought, you know, let's have a kind of a, a historical look. Let's look at the biography, the seer of the Prophet, and see what kind of examples uh, we can take from his life um, about peace. Um, and, and reconciliation. And again, I, I think it would be really interesting to look at the uh, life of the Prophet and also try and, uh, Prof Professor Appleby has uh, uh, kindly uh, uh, promised that he's, he will recommend some academic works to read and try and sort of combine the two, a historical perspective of the life of the Prophet, but bring it into the contemporary world and see what lessons as, as a Muslim uh, we can draw from that. But I really want to begin um, uh, in, in Southall, uh, the Broadway. I, I don't know whether uh, any, any of you have been to, to the Broadway, but uh, the Broadway in Southall has lots of restaurants. And every now and then, um, I, I, I try and take my family, um, my daughters and, and, uh, and, and I and, and, and my wife, we, we go and do some shopping. And um, we, um, we, you know, treat ourselves to a, to, 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 to a curry house. And last year when I went, I discovered uh, uh, a number of young people. They had a stall. They were giving out leaflets. And these leaflets were very much uh, about, um, uh, you know, uh, if you can't be friends with Jews and Christians. You, um, uh, democracy is haram. You know, to vote is haram. It's forbidden and so on. So what I did was take these. Um, leaflets and the information that they were disseminating uh, and actually provide a uh, theological response uh, to that. But what I want to uh, begin with is, is really to say that in the contemporary context, uh, the first steps on the path to effective peacemaking and peacebuilding must entail a dialogue uh, with those who hold uh, radical extremist views and to challenge their readings of the Quran and Hadith. So through this, we can challenge their narrative because that's absolutely essential to begin this uh, process of uh, uh, peacemaking. 
One of the verses that they, they, they were using in their literature was about uh, Muslims cannot uh, have relationships with other people of other faiths. And this is a, a kind of common narrative, common argument um, that the likes of Al-Qaeda and everybody uh, in, in that uh, kind of group uh, try and use. So uh, what's the Quranic response to that? Because, of course, in the contemporary world, it's an inter interconnected, interdependent world, and Muslims can't simply isolate themselves that there has to be interaction, they have to create a new kind of uh, system uh, which is uh, suited for the 21st century. But the Quranic response really um, to, to this diversity and how Muslims should uh, relate to that, um, that, there's a verse in, in the Quran that says, God does not forbid you to deal kindly and justly with anyone who has not fought you for your faith or driven you out of your homes. God loves the just. But God forbids you to take as allies those who have fought against you for your faith, driven you out of your homes, and helped others to drive you out. Any of you who take them, that's those who fight against you, as allies will be wrongdoers. Now, a traditional uh, commentary from Al-Tabri, uh, in, in, in commentary of this verse, he states, the most cre credible view is that the verse refers to people of all kinds of creeds, and religions who should be shown kindness and treated equitably. God referred to all those who do not fight the Muslims or drive them from their homes without exceptional qualification. And it's interesting that the word tabarru uh, is often translated as dealing kindly. Uh, but to fully appreciate the meaning of this term, we must examine the root uh, it comes from. And the root is barra. By doing so, we discover the depth of its meaning and the basis upon which the relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims should be based. It should, should be based upon being just to one another. Um, at one point in the Quran, God says, let not a people's enmity towards you incite you to act contrary to justice. Be just, for it is closest to righteousness. So any form of peacemaking, uh, the central theme has to be, there have to be mechanisms for, for justice and the, and the dispensing of justice. Um, uh, another meaning would be uh, dealing benevolently with one another. Um, a, a Christian delegation from Najran visited the Prophet, and when it was time for their prayer, the Prophet allowed them to pray in the mosque facing towards the east. So that really shows you the kind of um, uh, liberal uh, attitude that the Prophet had towards uh, people of other faiths. And of course, behaving with utmost courtesy at all times. Uh, on one occasion, a funeral was passing. The Prophet, out of respect, stood up, and the, the, the companion said, oh, the Prophet, this is a, a Jew. And the Prophet replied, was he not a human being? And so from this, Islamic scholars have drawn from this hadith and numerous verses of the Quran that every human being has been honored by God with dignity. Now, before the mission of the Prophet, an interesting incident took place that shows the Prophet's attitude to peace building. Mecca, of course, was a tribal society without any legal system, the consequence of which was that the rights of the weak and the less powerful tribes were not respected. A transgression by one person of another would often lead to conflict between tribes. And because of the absence of a mechanism for redress, the conflict in war would last for many years. In one incident, a foreign merchant visiting Mecca would 
found himself in a position in which the buyer refused to pay. The buyer, being a prominent man of Mecca, was well aware that the merchant had no tribal support and would not be able to force him to pay. However, the merchant appealed to the Prophet's tribe, the Quraysh, to see that justice was done. Most of the clans who had no alliances with the Meccan man, uh, man's uh, clan responded immediately. So there was a concrete resolve to ensure that justice was done. Clan meetings were held and they concluded a pact in which they stated that in every act of oppression in Mecca, they would stand together as one man on the side of the oppressed against the oppressor until justice was done. Whether the oppressed man were a Quraysh or one who had come from abroad, it did not matter. And later, the Prophet would say, looking back at this incident, at this event, he would say, I was present in the house of Abdullah ibn Jud'an at so excellent a pact that I would not exchange my part in it for a herd of red camels. Herd of red camels being very, uh, a tremendously valuable thing in those days. Uh, and if now in Islam I was summoned to it, I would gladly respond. So I think the first lesson from this would be that the cycle of violence um, can only be broken through establishing a just system for addressing grievances. Secondly, that a just system must ensure that all members of the society feel ownership and that it treats all equitably. It is also legitimate for Muslims to enter into agreements and pacts with non-Muslims for the greater good. Now, despite the efforts of violent extremist ideologues, warfare in Islam is not a perpetual state, but a means to be employed only as a last resort. So Islam restricts war, promotes peace, prosperity, justice, freedom, mutual coexistence and cooperation between nations and peoples. And despite the suffering, I mean, it's incredible. When you look at the life of the Prophet in Mecca, it's incredible the, the, the intense suffering that the Prophet experienced and the earlier community experienced. So, for example, um, th th there's a uh, Quranic uh, commentary by Ali ibn Ahmad al-Wahid, uh, which states that the idolaters from among the people of Mecca were in the habit of harming the com companions of the Messenger of Allah, these companions used to come always either beaten up or with their skulls bashed in. They complained to the Messenger of Allah about the situation and he persistently told them, be steadfast, for I have not been commanded to fight. And this really is the greater jihad. You know, we have this idea of the lesser and the greater jihad. And the greater jihad is in Mecca, where there's oppression, there's a lot of violence towards Muslims. Yet the response is not um, uh, violence and violence, but the response very much is to respond um, through, the, uh, through argument, through dialogue. Um, and on occasions, of course, Muslims are forced to leave uh, to seek refuge in Abyssinia, uh, which was a Christian place. So, you know, again, that's another um, argument against those people who say that uh, uh, you can't go um, to, 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 to non-Muslims uh, for, for help. And as a matter of fact, in, in Abyssinia, we actually have a tradition in which the Muslims are praying for the king.
Now the other really kind of interesting uh, point was when uh, after all this suffering and finally when the Prophet uh, was, uh, his life was threatened, um, you know, there was a plot to kill him. He actually left uh, uh, Mecca for Medina. And Medina is an interesting place because uh, not only are there pagan Arabs there, but there are also there's a strong contingent of uh, uh, Jews there. There's also uh, outlying uh, Christian tribes. And Medina is a place uh, which ha has completely been exhausted through conflict. Um, they've just basically exhausted themselves through fighting. Um, not because they've come to some peace, but because th they've been fighting for such a long time. And so the Prophet comes, and the first thing he does, which, which is, is quite a unique document really, He's, he brings the different parties and different tribes together and establishes what is called the Constitution of Medina. And the Constitution of Medina really laid out the duties and responsibilities of the different constituents uh, of Medina. And this would be to, to, to allow freedom of religion uh, for, for all people uh, within uh, Medina, uh, protection of property and livelihood, and equitable treatment of all citizens, and more importantly, to in, in order to show law, uh, in, ensure law and order, all citizens as, uh, would be one against criminals and lawbreakers. But the key, I think, for us, for us when we look at Medina is the idea of the central authority. And this is something I think really I can relate to in, in the contemporary world. The problem we have is that there isn't a central authority or central leadership within uh, Muslims. And, and this is why uh, the likes of Al-Qaeda, the likes of Taliban, are able to gain ground. So what we have to try and do is, is, is to support the infrastructure, in, support the leadership of these countries. And it has to be done through a democracy. There has to be, we simply cannot go and support um, uh, governments that are uh, you know, tyrants, uh, despots, um, we, we, you know, because by doing that, we're seen as being part of that oppression that these ordinary people at grassroots level exercise. So leadership is, is, is key that, that's coming uh, through here. Um, and of course, this is how this vicious cycle of violence can, comes to an end uh, in, in Medina. And, and, and all the parties, all the different parties who had been fighting one another were signatories uh, to this agreement. <coughs> but but the, the problem, I think, what's, and, and I haven't done a lot of uh, work on this aspect, was you know, what were the, the, the main contributors to the, um, to, to the dismantling of this, uh, the Constitution of Medina? Uh, this week, we, not enough uh, work, I, I, I think, has has been done on that because we can learn from that. But what I also try and do is use the Constitution of Medina as a foundational sort of document that, that isn't the end but just the beginning for, for Muslims in the contemporary world because it means that you know, here we have um, uh, a practice of the Prophet that really allows us to create uh, a, a constitution that embraces other faiths as well. Now in in March um, 628, which is the sixth year of the uh, Hijra, the migration to Medina, uh, the Prophet, he did something that's really, um, 
uh, incredible in terms of we were talking about those strategic moves. Um, what the Prophet did was he actually, having fought the Meccans uh, in Badr, in Uhud, um, having fought them, he suddenly decided that they were going to go on the pilgrimage, un unarmed, no weapons. They were dressed in the Iran and they traveled to Mecca, which completely took the Meccans by surprise. And there's a place called Hudaybiyah, where that's the place where they stopped. And so Meccans and uh, the, 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 the companion of the Prophet and the Prophet himself um, uh, were involved in diplomacy, in, 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 in negotiations, because the Meccans, if they allowed the Muslims to uh, continue to pilgrimage, would, be, uh, a would, would give uh, the wider Arabian uh, area a sense that the Muslims had, uh, had won. So they, they had to come to some kind of agreement. And what's interesting about the agreement is that outwardly, when you look at the agreement, it seems to be completely against the Muslims. Because the agreement states, for example, uh, when it's being uh, written down, on a number of times, uh, the Prophet said, you know, disagreement between the messenger of God and uh, the, the, the Meccan tribes. And, 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 and the, 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 the negotiator from the Meccan said, no, you know, we don't accept you as, as much a messenger of God. So the Prophet said, okay, if that's your attitude, we'll, we'll cut that out. Um, and so, so and, then, and the second, one of the t toughest conditions was that if any convert from Mecca uh, were to go and t seek refuge in Medina, he would have to be returned back to the, to, 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 to the tribe in Mecca, which outwardly seemed uh, quite a, you know, uh, it, it was quite a substantial um, uh, giving in uh, uh, to, to, to the Meccans. And some of the companions of the Prophet um, were, were not uh, too, too, ha too happy about this. And, and the worst of, uh, of this was that when the agreement had been signed, um, a companion, a, a young uh, Muslim convert who had been chained up, he arrived and he was crying and he was saying, look, you know, take me with you. But the Prophet said, no, we've, we've established our pact. And, and the pact quite clearly says that if any convert comes to, to us in Medina, we have to give him back to the Meccans. So he, he has to be given uh, back to the Meccans. But I think the, the really important lesson uh, from this, uh, again, is that, that sense of leadership and how the companions, although they disagreed with the Prophet um, and, and didn't quite see the wisdom of uh, what was to come, although they disagreed, they accepted the decision. And the problem we have, for example, today in Palestine and so on, is that that kind of leadership isn't there. People are just not prepared to accept that, you know, sometimes for the sake of peace, we have to make substantial concessions. Because peace is always far uh, greater um, and, 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 and central to the flourishing of human beings. So in conclusion then, to build lasting peace and to initiate peacemaking is, is something that is intrinsic to the lessons that we learn from the life of the Prophet. The key components of successful peacemaking and peace building has to be one of leadership. Uh, diplomacy, negotiations, foresight, and a real genuine desire for peace. The pre preparedness to make the necessary sacrifices of concessions uh, is essential, and to ensure that all parties feel 
they have ownership of, of, of the process. So thank you and I shall conclude there. <laughs>